Thanks all. I, uh, as Teji mentioned, it's a busy time in my life with transitioning from one job to one that's 1,650 miles away. So a uh, new feed of emails from Colorado, but it's been great to be part of this team and I'd like to share with you one final time what we've learned in our clinic and uh, where we plan to go and uh, how we can really bring this product of personalized medicine into the practice. So my slides are a little rough. This really is a frontline talk. And uh, some of the things I want to talk about today, and this is very informal, I like to have an open discussion. I'm really going to use this session as an opportunity to get feedback from you because you're going to see some raw data from a project we've been working on the last year. And I really want to kind of see how all of you react to it, what we should do in the analysis, and you know, is this a product that we really want to encourage other primary care physicians to use. That's the core CAD product that we've been working with over the last year. So I really want to learn about what we've done operationally to bring personalized medicine into the fold. How do physicians document personalized medicine tests? You know, we've had a lot of debate about do we put this in the chart? What about if the insurance company reviews this and they see we did a personalized medicine test? Is that going to be covered service? Is it going to be denied? Is it going to be held against them in the future for their insurance coverage? How are physicians documenting that in clinical practice? And um, it's one thing to have a new field of personalized medicine and to learn it at your own pace. What we found, many vendors are pushing personalized medicine to us. And maybe we're not ready to receive that message. I'm going to show you some of the examples we get in our primary care practice of how tests are pushed to us and they may not add value. And the core CAD test I had mentioned, and we'll finish up with kind of looking at the data of that test. So I think in the clinical operations, I think the biggest success has been really having a study coordinator on site. Number one, you need a champion for the cause. And hopefully I've acted as a positive champion to bring personalized medicine into the practice, get others engaged. My role as a medical director there gave me some political clout to kind of bring some of these new issues into the fold. We are an academic medical practice. We have the resonance. We like to bring new products to our patients and to our residents to understand how they should use this test. So having the bully pulpit a little bit as a leader in the practice definitely makes a difference, but you also need a champion at the site. And Mary Lou's sitting here next to me. She has really been the key champion for that. Carving out some space for Mary Lou in the clinic and it, it takes some time to get traction. You know, it's a new face, it's a new product, and you've got to really be diligent about being there and being present. And that really, I think, has made the biggest difference as far as getting traction in the personalized medicine space. So I think when we look at our successes over the last three or four years, this has been a big one. Because you get in there, you put a flag in the office, you say, I'm staying here until someone throws me out. And that's really how you have to do it. And you start to build relationships. You build relationships with the providers, you build relationships with the staff, you build relationships with your patients, and that further enhances what we're trying to do. Personalized medicine has a personal face. So either a clinical leader, study coordinator leaders, anybody who kind of creates that message is very important. I think the other thing we found is integrating personalized medicine into the workflow. And I'll show you an example where it doesn't integrate well into the workflow, and it's just rejected. But I think what we've done is integrated our messaging of personalized medicine into our clinical workflow, particularly our electronic medical record. We have a system that we call tasking, where it's really kind of a, a fancy inbox of ways to message. So I can see a patient down in the clinic, and it's a patient who's on a cholesterol medicine or maybe having a side effect with a cholesterol medicine. Right now we're doing a study looking at genetic testing to see if someone's at high risk for side effects from a cholesterol medicine. So if I see a patient at the point of care, I can electronically type a message to Mary Lou. She can see that instantaneously, react to it, either meet the patient or call the patient to enroll in the study. So it's made our enrollment in clinical studies much more efficient and much more built into the workflow. It's not like we got to write a separate piece of paper that's got to be faxed or routed or handed or lost. That's one thing that I think building into the electronic workflow has made a big difference. Any of you ever seen the, I wanted to have some screenshots and I'm sorry that I didn't have time to put some screenshots of the tasking up there, but any of you worked with the tasking system or the McKesson system? Have you guys seen it in clinical practice? It's nothing really fancy. It's really kind of an electronic you know, messaging system. But uh, one of the lessons learned be present, 
integrate into the workflow. Scott, you mentioned that you were the sort of the champion, at least at the at the site level. Is there a champion higher than you? Uh, you know, I think obviously Jeff's a huge well, champion. <laughs> but, but, I mean, in your, sort of in your line of command. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. I think uh, there's a lot of skepticism about personalized medicine. I think um, I've had the opportunity in my managed care role to begin to think about how we cover tests, how these tests could be used maybe to reduce downstream utilization. And I think the issue, Bruce, is there's a big debate in the medical circles now about what's going to happen with healthcare reform. You know, healthcare reform has given us an opportunity to look at cost containment and, and appropriate testing. Uh, if that all goes away, it's going to be the wild, wild west again where you're just going to order more and more tests and costs are going to increase. So I think the more senior leaders are kind of, you know, hedging their bets a little bit about, you know, do we really get into this or do we just maintain business as it's been? So I, I would say there's not someone who's carrying the flag maybe in the, you know, two levels above me, you know, so, but they, they also, being here 15 years gave me some clout to kind of have some credibility to say, let's look at this. And I think the culture of an academic medical practice, you know, we want to be in the space learning how to use these, learning how to educate our providers and our residents about it. But uh, not as strong as champion probably you would hope. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think, I think the leadership, I guess the question is the leadership in the research space, which I think we've clearly been a part of, I think everybody's struggling with the clinical implementation. And I think that's, that's what we've had some real experience and uh, success at bringing the diabetes study into play, where we looked at patients who had an annual check, who had a glucose test done. And we know that less than 10% of people listen to what we say about eating better and losing weight. So we said if we showed them their genetic risk along with their other risk factors, did it make a difference? And I think you guys have seen some of it in, in cases here. I think the counseling made a difference. The question is, did the genetic testing make a difference? That's not really clear. We don't have the final analysis yet. But uh, that's one thing that we're looking at. The study that we're doing now with DPAC, looking at statin side effects, uh, you know, I saw the patient, Mary Lou, that, that you and I have had conversations about who was going to be a study participant just for the sake of science, but there was no way, irregardless of what this test said, that he was going to go back on a statin because <laughs> he had had a side effect with it. So, you know, th I saw him yesterday and I, I said, you know, that really is not a bad strategy because maybe this is just one of the issues related to statin metabolism. You may have one that we have yet to discover. We know you don't have this one. But clearly, as these studies evolve, you have the opportunity to participate in future studies. So he was engaged in the concept. And I think our patients have been very open to the concept. Really haven't had a lot of pushback. A few patients have pushed back about how is this information going to be used? Is it going to be part of a bigger database? Uh, will this affect my insurance coverage in the future? So we've heard some comments like that, but they're very infrequent. But isn't it interesting he had the interest in doing the yeah, test stuff? No, no, so it's like, it's like he's putting his toe in the water about, you know, I'm not sure what this is about, but I don't want to be left out of it. You know, it's interesting to see how, how people make that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that he did it for me. I really don't think he did it for me. <laughs> he didn't do it for me. Yeah. So, yeah, he might. And, you know, we've seen that. I've been here 15 years. It's fascinating to kind of see how patients with chronic conditions change their mind based on either a life event or a personal experience. And people who don't get their diabetes act together for 10 years, have an event or need a procedure, and all of a sudden they, the light bulb clicks. So I think the way I look at personalized medicine, it's giving a new product to patients. You know, just like if we put a new product on the shelves of a grocery store, kind of see if people are interested in picking it up, learning from it. How do we communicate? Does it allow us to communicate better as providers? with our patients about their risk factors. So this is a report from the field right here. This is a patient of one of my partners. And the box there, you guys may not be able to see it, but I'll read it to you here. It's the assessment and plan. 
And it says, since the last visit, patient has stopped Pravacol, which is a cholesterol medicine. Uh, she states that she had recurrence of her left lower extremity pain. Patient has had intolerance to multiple statins. Today, she is agreeable to get tested with a gene therapy to see if she has a propensity to develop myopathy with statins. Bruce, you're like squinting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, something to know. So, I guess this is good because you're seeing some of the documentation of personalized medicine come into clinical notes. And then I guess in the other way, it's kind of bad because it's really not gene therapy, right? And, you know, if someone from Blue Cross Blue Shield was looking at this, it'd be, what are those guys in Duke Primary Care doing? You know, they got an IRB approval for that? And um, so, you know, these are internists that, that you know, are, are academic internists, uh, well-respected. And I think this shows how we're struggling with figuring out how to accurately document this test, you know, and document the, uh, the effects of genetic testing. So I found that this one was interesting as we've kind of been looking at the charts to say, hmm, here's a, a good thing because it's documenting personalized medicine, but it's also we need to get a little bit better about the messaging and what kind of terms we really need to use. So as we move forward, we have to think about as we look at the clinical studies, okay, here's how you document it in the chart. This is really a genetic test looking at side effects. It's not gene therapy. You know, getting the wording right. We talk about the vocabulary, and I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of misunderstanding about the vocabulary of personalized medicine and genomic medicine. So we almost have to take a step back as we move forward and begin to come up with a glossary and the way we're going to document these terms. And, and part of that is uh, the, the bigger deep compliance and how they want people to actually um, discuss what goes into patient charts. So um, I think there is the, the level of we can craft some stuff, but then push it up to the, the upper level to see if that's within their regulations and, and approvable. Mm -hmm. so would you consider this sort of um, misunderstanding of terms to be common among clinicians? Because, I, I mean, I find it a little concerning that they would use the term gene yeah. therapy. No, no. It's not a dictation error. No, it I think to your point, I think it's extremely common. And I think it's one of the barriers why people aren't engaging more in personalized medicine. I'm gonna show you another example of something that's even a little more confusing. So I think that um, it's almost like this has gotten so far out. And like I said, these are interns who really are on the top of their game, I would say. You know, these are, these are physicians who are, are staying current, who are teaching residents, who are paying attention to this stuff. And if we're struggling with the documentation, you think about taking it to a more rural practice about, you know, how, how do you guys do this? And um, so th this is something we got to really pay a little bit closer attention to, I think, as we move forward to documentation. Patients are going to have access to their notes. They have access now, but now they're going to have online access. So a patient may freak out if uh, someone's looking at this and, whoa, I got gene therapy. And they see something on the news where gene therapy study went bad. And wait, Dr. X said I was on gene therapy. And you can just see how this could really be a problem. So uh, it's an opportunity for us to educate our providers when we see examples like this and to think about when we're putting studies together. What's the messaging? You know, here's how you document it. Really, is something we, we need to add into that. Really, I mean, the, fish, the physicians understand what it is. It's just the words that they're. I mean, you well, when you say understand, you understand. You understand that this is. You know, maybe it's maybe the word. So, so let's think. Let's, let's brainstorm about what it should say. What would you want it to say? Patient is interested in a test for personalized medicine. Personalized medicine test to look at risk of side effects of statin. Is that an appropriate documentation? Molecular test or genetic test or something. Yeah, because the therapy is the statin. The therapy is, we're given a statin is the therapy. It has nothing related to the, the yeah. gene. It's just, you know, do you have a drug, you know, if you, it's just your allergy list as well. You know, you have an allergy to statin. That's kind of what we're doing here. It's nothing related to the gene therapy. So I just throw it out there. What would, what would how would you document it? I'm all, I, I've started to say patient had personalized medicine tests to look at risk for side effects of medicine. That's broad enough, right? I specifically say it's a research study, too, so they know yeah. that this is not yeah. part of their normal clinical routine. Yep, patient participating in a research study, yeah. 
All right, I'm going to show you something else that will give you a little bit more GERD coming up. Here. <laughs> And if you're just rolling through your dictation, you know, it, you're saying all these patients had side effect, but she's participating. So the wording would have been, she is now participating in a personalized medicine study to look at risk of side effect of statin therapy. That would be a, a nice way to do it. That's right. But, We're all but, looking at genetics. But, no, no, you know, and it's it's an honest, you know, it's an honest mistake. It's 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 good that there the physicians are engaged in enrolling patients and talking to patients about it. But it does raise this other side of the coin where, hmm, you know, this is really a permanent record. And if something someone goes in the future, something happens, to this patient, they look at this note and they say this patient had gene therapy done. That's going to be some documentation and conversations we're going to have to clear up. So, so what's the note? Exactly. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think that's why, you know, to Bruce's point about getting the traction, that this is just really way at the margins that people are just trying to survive day to day, meet their quality measures, get the LDLs to target and, and push forward. So I, I give kudos to my team where they're even pushing it. But it's something that if this is going to become more widespread, we're going to see more and more of these documentation errors. And as we look at research studies and look at our program moving forward, you know, having communications team meeting about appropriate documentation is important. Let me show you this next example. See what you guys think. Yeah. I haven't. Yeah. Actually, would you do it right there so you know, so you don't, you see it once, but then if you don't go on, you don't see the note to the file for the correction. Yeah, see, you can't go back and edit that thing. Once it's signed, it's in. So you'd have to go and write an addendum to say, let me clarify that this was not gene therapy, this was something else. And you do a couple of those, and then physicians aren't going to refer to the study. You know, I mean, that's what's going to happen. You say, oh my gosh, you gave me another, I got enough notes to document, now you're telling me something else, I'm just done. You know, like you said, it's way at the margin. I'm, I'm here with you, Scott, but I ain't going to go real far with you. So. All right, what about this one? So here's one that, uh, this is the problem list of a patient. And in the problem list, they've got SLCO1B1 genetic test results indicate the patient is positive for the high-risk allele. Patient is higher risk for muscle-related side effects of certain statins, uh, such as simvastatin. So do you feel better about that being documented in the problem list as a research study, or should it not have been in the problem list? If you, if you were one of the patients, if you were a patient, would you want that... Uh, documented in your problem list. And then you think about the insurance company looking at your problems. You got a pre-existing condition. You got SLCO1B1. We don't know what that is, but we're going to charge you a higher premium for it. <laughs> well, in five years, but we are, you know, this is a 2011 note. So, you know, we're, we're at the margins. We're pushing it here. But, but they already have that with a lot of the cancer therapy drugs. I mean, or not a lot of them, but they have for a couple and that standard where they go in and they do the genetic testing to make sure that the patient doesn't have a bad reaction to that particular chemotherapy. So 
why can't that just be accepted in the cardiovascular world too? Yeah, I, I think I think it's it's appropriate. It gets into the question about a research study too. You know, I guess the question about the cancer documentation is that more of a standard of care process or a care map, where this really isn't yet part of a care map. So I think uh, we get back to that question about documenting patients' involvement in research studies in the clinical notes. You know, is this yeah. something that should reside in the, the permanent problem list, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, should it reside somewhere else? And maybe, again, looking at the documentation, maybe it should be a little bit qualified. This may, I mean, because again, yeah. this is still a research, right. and the association between this uh, allele and, uh, you know, adverse events associated with uh, some uh, statins is to be determined, right? I mean, it's, there seems to be some higher risk, but it's not one for one. And so this looks like it's a definitive. If you have this, you will have this. Right. This and maybe that comes across too strong because it is written the way it is. Right. And I think that's been cut from really the documentation that flows back and forth in the tasking system we talked about. Uh, patients in the study, we get the results back, and that's kind of the wording that we get. So the doc just cut that from the tasking system and popped it into the note. But uh, I, think it, I think it gave me a little bit of pause, to your point, Bruce, about, you know, should we qualify a little bit, you know, I think we need to be sensitive to this as a research study, you know, and I think maybe it shouldn't reside in the, uh, in the note. Maybe something that we need to bring up to the, with the research committee, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, I, you mentioned about pushing this up to the compliance level, and I, I think yeah. we're seeing these examples that if we don't get a strategy for it now, this is going to just get get out of control on us. So. Judd. Also, just the fact you know, where it is in the record, not just the fact that it's in the record. Is it, you know, is it, is it a problem that they have this particular genetic? You know, I mean, you know, certain risks are conveyed from being male versus female. I mean, is it a problem that you're a male, or is it? You know, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just, you know, it's a, an extra bit of information that may lead you to, you know, statin B instead of statin A. But You brought up a good good question about the stigma of genetic testing, right? I mean, really, in a way, you're stigmatizing it as a problem with putting it on the problem list, like a problem we got to solve. We can't solve it. You're right. It's your age or your gender or ethnicity that you can't change. This well, is just what it is. But in this case, you can solve it by not giving them that particular step. Well, we can do the gene therapy that we alluded to in right, the previous. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> change their allele. <laughs> so there was a, another question. There was. Uh, Somebody who was doing ultrasound, and they wanted to put uh, some new data about an association between some how how the ultrasound sort of reflected that what they were seeing may be uh, early signs of, of of a cancer just by its elasticity that they could do on ultrasound. And I was part of a long email string about the legality and the risk associated with having this in the patient record. I mean, this went around to the very highest level, you know, corporate counsel, safety, about saying, what can you put in a in the patient record when it really is research? Because they even cited the paper where the association between elasticity and, and potential tumor um, was, they just wanted to alert the primary physician that yeah. there, this might be there. Even with a caveat of, you know, you, of course, you need to go and maybe do a biopsy if you take this and as I said, they were, everybody was changing the language. I mean, the lawyers were involved, so I mean, you may. Gina gives special protection to, to genetic I guess it's, I guess the question is, it been challenged? I mean, the whole issue with Gina, that, that's another message. So I think as I, as I look at what we've learned and where I see this going is I think we've got to get a handle on this you know, soon because and we got to be sensitive about how we give feedback to the providers about this, because if the feedback's a little too heavy-handed, they're going to say, we're just not going to do any more personalized medicine. We don't want to be the cutting edge. This is just too risky. And a lot of people are willing to do that. I'm telling you, they will. it's real easy to take the step back from this. So I, uh, I think as, as we move forward, we've got to begin to think about documentation and getting compliance at some of these meetings and, and sharing examples and uh, having forums just like this, where I really need to sit down with my group, I'm going to show some of this at DNA Day today, just to begin to have the conversation about, okay, you know, you guys are pushing it, 
is this the best way? How can we do this better? So. And the other thing to follow up on Bruce's point about giving research or giving results back was as more whole um, exome sequencing and whole genome sequencing um, becomes more prevalent in the in the clinics, there will be research results or um, results that are unexpected that need to be followed up on. And how do you get those and documented in the medical record? How do you get those back to the patients? Do you go back to the primary physician and does that get integrated? And is that a research result? It's it's a predictor or it's a susceptibility, but how does that affect the patient um, insurance, et cetera? And, and all those issues, the, how do you give it back? Is it real? How do you get it validated? There's, there's a lot of other issues that um, go along with not just educating the physician, but how do you actually process all of this? Mm -hmm. yeah, I was just thinking back to Judd's point about should it be on the problem list? Where should it be? You know, we have an allergy list. Should we now have a genetic testing tab? You know, I mean, that's almost, to me, seems like the cleanest way to do it, that you're positive for SLCO1B1, right? I mean, it would just be another tab, and or that's would it not... Just be, would it be, instead of the genetic testing tab, put it in with the biomarker tab, or all the um, indicator, or the... Because um, it's not just genetic testing all the processes that go along with um, the proteins and the, and the right. products of genetics. So do you want to separate it out so it has its own tab? See, I think, from the stigma of genetic testing. I think right now, the question yeah. is we don't have that space. So physicians are trying to find a space for it, <laughs> and I think we're seeing that it's not fitting into any of the spaces that we have. So we, uh, this documentation needs to be something that I think uh, moving forward needs to, needs to be worked out a little bit. That's right. I'm just done. I'm, I'm stepping back. <laughs> All right. Now here's one. Uh, so that, those are things that we did, and you know, we we did the studies, and we kind of understood the statin study and the diabetes study. Now I mentioned in my summary that there's also people pushing genetic tests to us. Okay. And this is one that just increases my acid reflux every time I see these things. All right. So this is from our friend Medco. All right. <laughs> I say that sarcastically, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I had like five, I'm sorry? Are they express They're all, I don't know, did, who bought who? I couldn't, I couldn't figure out who bought who. Was it the, Medco, I, I didn't know if they're changing your name. Some patient was freaking out. They said, it took me seven years to get it straight with Medco. Now I'm going to have to take seven years to get it right with this. So, so this is the pharmacy benefit management company faxing a report to the doc, okay? And this is page one of the reports. I'll show you the other pages. So it's not just a simple report that you get. So I got this patient on bupropion, an antidepressant. It says, dear me, uh, you've prescribed this. It's a pharmacogenetic test under the PREDICT SciMeds pilot program. By signing and faxing back this test requisition, a GeneSite Rx test kit will be mailed to your patient. There are no out-of-pocket expenses or co-payments for the patient. To order this test, complete sign and fax this form. Fax to this. Yes, I'm authorized. No, I don't. And uh, so, we'll, we'll, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling. So I'm just having the GERD episode here. So, the, so, so here's something that you know I got enough going on. I got 20 patients. I got 110 lab results to look at in my box. I've got X-ray studies. I got you know urgent issues, and here this pops up on my desk. So how? How do you think most of us respond to this stuff? No, do you think? Sure, no cost of patient. It you would check it? See, this goes, the, this goes in the goes in a basket like that. It goes in a shredder for me. Okay. Well, opt in versus opt out. You know, they, they say people harder to opt out than to just let it go. So not so you're right. There's no cost to the patient, but there's a cost to my practice. There's an opportunity cost for me, right? Because now I got to go look and say, well, is this guy really still on bupropion, right? I mean, in the bottom it says, you know, patient's no longer on the medicine, I'm not interested, test already performed, other. Uh, I got to do a little bit of work there to, to do that. So I got to decide, okay, is it worth me taking a look at this list where, number one, I don't even know what this test is, right? I don't know what Medco's doing. I've never heard this detailed. I have no idea what this test is measuring or 
how I'm going to interpret the result. We already showed some examples of how even in studies that we've been telling people about, they don't know how to interpret it. So now I get this PsyMed test back. How am I going to put that in the chart? I don't even know what it means. I don't even know what it's running. Uh, that's a good question. You know, it's. That's a that's an evil approach. I like that. That's usually what they're thinking. <laughs> Genomics for generics is one of their catchphrases, and that's what they're kind of working on. They can, and it's it's all kind of um, more spin than data. But if you can provide a genetic test that indicates a generic prescription versus a brand, then they're saving money. Yeah. So Genomics for generics is one of the places they're focusing on. I, I can't read the details. I'm sorry. Yeah. They actually have a safety issue. They're trying to hide it here. Um, but uh, no, that's uh, one of those angles is uh, trying to increase generic uptake. So, well, outside of cancer treatment, are there good examples of um, how that code can actually save money? So. They actually um, push the warfarin genetic testing. Because I know that happened with um, a woman at, um, at UNC where she did have an episode. She had to go on warfarin, and they sent her the offer to do the genetic testing to make sure that she was at the right dosage. I don't know if they're make well, it's a way to provide value. <laughs> to who? <laughs> yeah. well, for this to their clients. To yeah, to the yeah. HR. See, the, I, I liked your comment about more spend than data. And you know, when I in this managed care space, sitting at the table with people who are making benefit, it's amazing that. They don't really question the data. You know, Medco will come and say, we cut $4 million by switching to uh, mail order. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm at the table saying, okay, well, you cost me a lot because now I have to go and do all this stuff and rewrite. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't want this guy coming back to the movie. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I, I, the other angle potentially for Medco is to get into the space of genetic testing, to offer the testing as a, as a product for their services. You know, that they'll go to HR and they'll say, well, we, we can do this testing, but it's an extra $60 per member or whatever. So I, I, think, I think they're trying to bundle this into the pharmacy benefit package to create their their package to be more attractive, even though we don't have a lot of data. And the point here, it said, the results of this test can provide you with valuable information regarding the way your patient's unique genetic makeup may affect his or her response to certain psychiatric drugs. There's a lot of may or may nots or may and kind of, so, you know, we talked about the concern about documenting this and what's the downstream effects of documenting genetic testing for our patients. Here's a test, it'll give me a reference, it'll give me a, study to look at, they don't give me a, if you have any questions about this study, call our medical director at, or email. There's nothing like that, right? So There's nothing I can even ask anybody about this. It's either yes or no. Bruce was, Bruce is just, yeah, he's, he's mailing it in, man. This might be actually someone that's interested, generally, in this kind of thing, so. Yeah, What's well, just saying this is your response and you're actually interested in I mean, interested in learning more. Yeah. Kind of yeah. But I can't learn anything more. There's no one to call. Yeah, there's no Jeff Ginsburg's name on there. <laughs> it's like what's up? Or you know, so I actually talked to our I actually did go the extra step and talk to our psychiatrist, Morali, who's who's part of the and Morali's like, We don't do this test. You know, he's a psychiatrist and Dave Steffens I know well and talked to him. He goes, We're not doing this and Marvin Schwartz isn't doing it. He's in psych, and I'm there, you know, can we turn this off? So I go to HR and say, you turn this off, please. We're drowning in these facts. And so Medco comes back and they say, well, like 15% of, well, you guys are different. 15% of docs in our whole book of business do order this test. I mean, they got a nurse check in the box, man. Or, or they're early adopters who are out in practice and just want to do something creative and are checking the box. And there's this Rogers adoption curve we learn in, in business school. And, you know, there's, you know, 15% who are innovators and early adopters. And that's what you're going to pick up. That, that's what the data they showed with the Warfarin study. You know, they had 15, 20% pickup. And that's what you'd expect just from the population uptake of new testing. But so I put this up here as just an example from the field of, stuff being pushed to us that can negatively influence the perception of personalized medicine. Okay, this is more work for me. I, I, I think if Medco would ask how I can make this better, give me a number of someone to contact, give me a reference for a research study that I could look at. 
There's nothing. It's a yes or no, and then I'm going to get some result back. I'm going to have no idea how to interpret it, put it in the box. Why do I want to go down that path? So I, I put this up there just to say we're getting these daily, multiple times a day. And uh, this is page two, so it gets a little more complex. They give you a whole list of, uh, you know, we were talking about the, the structure, what you do with it. To see. So I guess if you get this test back, you use as directed, uh, use with caution, use with caution and with more frequent monitoring. What the heck's more frequent monitoring mean? Is that liver enzymes? Kid, well, what's that mean? Uh, antipsychotics. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I, I put this up there saying that, you know, this is really complex. So are the physicians in primary care seeing 20, 24 patients a day going to spend the time to research this? And is it dangerous to order the test without really understanding what you're ordering? I don't know what to do with it. Use with caution. What's that mean? Do I stop it? <laughs> do I decrease the dose? Do I send a psych? See, don't prescribe it. Well, you know, but they've got depression. So I've already diagnosed them with depression. I already know they've got. So I, I'm feeling. So a patient comes in and this guy's on Wellbutrin. His depression's controlled. Why do I want to order this test? Right? Just opens Pandora's box for me about finding a problem. The guy's been fine. He was depressed when we started it. His PHQ9 score is improved. His depression is treated. Why do I want this? Right? Medco's stands to gain by having jumping through six meds and landing on one is if you can jump through two meds and land mm -hmm. on one, they save all the scripts for those first four. That is uh, the same with the warfarin. I mean, that's yeah. kind of a principle, but really, what's the evidence that they can <coughs> today or next, this year, next year, they actually can save money? I, I just don't see that. I think, well, I think they're just taking the, they, they want to be seen as a leader in economics and that so. <laughs> willing to take a loss while they gather the evidence, and if it doesn't work out, they drop the program, and if it works, then they can save money. Yeah, Felix. Yeah, Wasn't it Felix? Huh? There was Felix, too. Felix. Felix, Felix. Yeah. 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 And I think, and his whole point was, you know, they they, they just felt they needed to, right. to be here. And, and he had, because I think several people said, are you making this pay? And how are you, what's your uh, mm -hmm. your metrics? And he said, I, I've not been asked to, to show that this pays yet. Yet. Yeah. But get out there and understand it. So this may mm -hmm. be part of the, the data gathering. Let's send it out. Let's see what the impact of testing has on, you know, this is part of their research. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Part of their and as far as the, you know, the language, um, as far as, you know, use with caution, it, it has to do with the FDA and whether or not you're directing care. And if you're directing care, then it, then it goes up to a, a PMA to get, the, to get the test approved. But if you're just providing guidance, then it's a different level of approval. So they're, they're trying to have a good way. Yeah. You know, the choice is yours, you know, <laughs> we're not going to tell you what to do, but, you know, but then at the same time being so vague that it's not very helpful. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, and it just gives me more stress and acid reflux that I don't even want to go into the space. And I think that's what the, that's what the perception has been for these kind of things. And, and uh, you know, I, I just worry that, you know, I, I like to point, if we had patients who weren't responding after a fair trial, then I think this could be appropriate. I, I like the more strategic approach. I don't like this just faxing for everybody who's on an antidepressant and uh, trying to think that this is the right patient. So uh, this, this is an example of the pushing of medicine. And this is just what the report looks like. There are, you know, two, four, six genes that they report on. So, you know, there's going to be a mixed bag of all these. And, well, you know, once again, we talked about the gene therapy. Do you put this in the problem list? You know, one of the things that we've seen, if you get this information back, uh, it just opens up a box that I don't think at this point is maybe, valuable. Maybe, this may be just completely researches. If they see, they know the genetic profile, they know what the scripts for this patient. If they change, 
they may be able to draw some conclusions that the person is switching because it hasn't been effective. And so even without interacting with you, just by looking at the you know future use of drugs, I mean, this is, again, a huge treasure trove of data that they can mine any time and maybe drive things, you know. Not to say that that's the way they're thinking, but I mean, given that they had a sort of a research-minded person who's heading this group, this could be just a... I think that's what they're doing. Yeah. Well, Medco has no access to the lab data now. See, that's, you know, that that's one of the things. And now this is a place, to your point, I think, where they can get into the lab space yeah. and they can start looking at linkages. Yeah. But the question is, how's that from a patient standpoint? You know, patients have expressed to me about participating in some of our pilot studies. You know, how's this going to be used? And here, it does not say that your data will, you know, be used to. You know, I mean, that. So, this, this to me is a, a little bit shaky, but something that is that is out there. And uh, you know, is it good or bad for personalized medicine? I think this hurts the cause, to be honest with you. I think it's perceived as being more work. I think it's being perceived as not being evidence-based. And I think it uh, it hurts the cause for us in this the space. The approach that they're taking hurts the cause. Yeah, I think a blanket fax is so impersonal without any kind of personal contact on there. I mean, it those are just how I respect. It did. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I feel better. <laughs> All right, so our final part of the talk is uh, core CAD. So chest pain, obviously, in general internal medicine, a big a big issue that we see in our patients. So. Problem is, there are a lot of different reasons. I mean, a lot of chest pain is not related to angina. It's not related to heart disease. You, know, you can have musculoskeletal pain. You can have acid reflux from fax reports. You can have gallbladders. You know, you can have pneumonia. There's a lot of things going on, and and uh, you know, a lot of people come in with chest pain. So we have to work that up. We got to figure out number one: is it your heart? That's what we always have to rule out. And this is some data looking at guidelines that there's many as 16.5 million stable angina patients with about 500,000 new diagnoses annually. Uh, we do have testing, so patients come in with chest pain, we're going to do an EKG in the office. EKG looks normal, we're going to do a couple things, or offer them a couple things. We'll offer a exercise treadmill test, we can offer them a stress echocardiogram, we can offer them a myocardial perfusion imaging study, like a percentine thallium study. Uh, or now, we can offer them a genetic test, a gene expression test, if you will say, to be the, the right way to, to describe it. Uh, but when that patient's sitting across from you, you can also look at their risk of heart disease, right? You can say, okay, how old are you? What's your sex? What's your cholesterol? What's your blood pressure? And you can calculate a risk score. Framingham risk scores can be calculated. And that also gives you where patients' risks are as far as heart disease. So I can say the patient coming in with chest pain, Kendall, your EKG is normal. Uh, your cholesterol is great. Your blood pressure is fine. What would you like to do? I can put you on a treadmill for six minutes to nine minutes, and we can do that with the EKG on. I can do an ultrasound to your heart while you're exercising. Uh, I can give you uh, a perfusion study, which, by the way, has the highest radiation burden of any test that we order, <laughs> and patients don't know that. We do these millions of percentine and, and thallium studies, and that's one of the highest, it is the highest radiation burden of any test that we can offer. So people don't, never ask, how much radiation am I getting from this test? Just check out my heart. I'm bathing you in the equivalent of a thousand chest x-rays when I do this. It's not, not good. So that never comes up. So you didn't ask me about, hey, Scott, what's my, what's my radiation exposure? Yeah. Yeah. And then, then Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I can just bathe people in radiation every three months with CT scans and everything else. So, so, that, so we can do that. Your Framingham risk is about 1%. So in the next 10 years, you get a 1% chance of having a heart attack based on your risk factors. And that's also based on yeah. All right. Yeah. We, we, we try to, fair enough. We try to, so, all right. Good question. We could do the, let's say a Reynolds risk score is low. Okay. So a Reynolds risk score, a little bit more validated for females. So your, your Reynolds risk score is low. So we can put you on a treadmill. We can do an ultrasound. We can give you radiation or we can do a blood test that looks at your likelihood of having obstructive coronary disease. So as a consumer, now, now you what would you choose? She came in with chest pain. Oh, you came in with chest yeah. pain. Yeah. Yeah. She came in with chest pain. Yeah. yeah. 
What are your Heartburn. <laughs> So how can genomics help? So here's, so we talked a little bit about this. We talked about the risk factor predictions that we can get, you know, with Framingham, a 10-year risk, chance of having a heart attack. So this whole issue with core CAD, gene expression tests, current information on the status of atherosclerosis or obstructive coronary disease, and a string of gene expressions to form a predictive algorithm to the current risk of obstructive coronary disease. For example, the chance you have a significant heart vessel blockage now. And we know that most people with, so most people who have heart attacks actually don't have angina, right? They, their, their event is just sudden, right? It's an acute injury. It's a plaque rupture that forms a clot and people have problems. So a lot of people are walking around with 40, 60% blockages in their arteries. They're just stable plaque. The people, so that's what, that's, that's what this test is predicting for, stable plaque, obstructive coronary disease, 60, 75% lesions. So knowing that, if your doctor offered you this blood test versus the other test I offered, as consumers, which ones would you guys want? Or what other questions would you ask? What do you recommend? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what they say, actually. All right, Dr. Toy, what do you want? Well, I don't have any relationship financially with Cora CAD. I'm just here offering new products to patients. So. You know, the answer is sort of what, you know, assuming it's positive or you know, how, how is my how would your recommendations of, of care for me change depending on the results of that? Good. So I, I've been doing a little bit of research on this because it, it made me go back and think, well, we just always think that these stress tests are really good at predicting heart disease. So if you look at the sensitivity and specificity of the exercise treadmill test, you look at a stress echo, you look at the perfusion study, this is the radiation study, and you look at core CAD, this is kind of a summary of some of the literature that's out there when you look at stress testing. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, you know, you're still missing some cases, clearly, even with these tests. So people kind of feel that they've had that big thallium study, got their extra radiation for the, for the year, and they feel that, you know, it was normal. They feel like they don't have heart disease. That's not the case. I mean, you still do have a risk of having obstructive heart disease. So what are the endpoints on these sensitivity and specificity studies? So these are people who have... Obstructive coronary disease greater than 75%. Yep. By the cath. So if they go and, so they do the stress test, then they do the gold standard cath, greater than 75%. So the specificity is the false, false positive? False positive, yeah. So, so half the time they're wrong in the course? Yeah. But it's very sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good negative predictive. <laughs> So, all right, so there's some skepticism in the group here. Um, do you feel better about, you feel good about that? I mean, does it, I mean, where's your threshold for specificity where you start to feel a little better? I, I guess it would go back to, you know, so you, you score high, you know, a high risk for one of these tests. What, what, what's your, how do you change? All right, you guys are going to be the first to ever see this. This is raw data from the field. You ready? Oh, that wasn't it. So, so Cora CD came to us. He said, we know you guys are on the margins. We know you're kind of pushing it. You want to do some tests. We said, we're not going to do them and charge patients for it. We'll, we'll be willing to do it and learn a little bit from it. So they, they provided 20 tests free to us. They're about $800 a test. Um, phlebotomy, we couldn't do it in the Duke lab because it was kind of an experimental test. So the phlebotomy was done off-site. Uh, to my... Dismay, it was a paper order form. What's it? <laughs> yeah, they got here. No, actually, the, the patients had really good feedback about the service. They said, these people were great. They called me. They met me in my house at 730. They did the blood test. So no one had any problem with their service. It was better than getting it in our lab where they always have. But it was, it was done. Unfortunately, it was done in a paper form. It wasn't integrated to our electronic medical record. So there was some communication issues back and forth about getting the facts back versus getting it back electronically. So that was a little bit of a barrier. All right. <laughs> I have a file of these. I have all these shadow files now of this stuff. All right, here you go. I'm sorry it's slow, but this is the raw data from what we found. So 70% of the patients, we did 13 patients thus far. Okay, we offered to test the 13 patients. And about 70% of them, 69% I think, were female. You can see we had uh, African Americans and Caucasians. Average age in the uh, you know, mid-60s. So here's the scores. So 
Here's how it plays out. Low risk is 1 to 15. Mid risk is 16 to 28. High is 29 to 40. Okay. So I've got, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. 8 out of 13 that came in low risk. Okay. I've got uh, 1, 2, 2 that came in mid-risk, and 3 that came in high-risk. So, I, I, so one of the things that I found interesting in this data is, did this core CAD test tell me anything that I didn't already know from the Framingham data? Because okay? I got a score of 1, I got a Framingham risk of 1. I got a score of 1, I got 1. I got a score of eight, three percent. Remember, less your average risk of heart disease after age fifty is about one percent a year. Okay, so anything less than ten percent on a Framingham score would be considered low risk. I uh, got a four, two percent. Got a thirteen, a four. So the people that were in the low risk, I kind of already knew they were low risk. All right? They like scored one to four percent on their Framingham risk, so they were below the expected risk of heart disease for their risk factors. Um, so, Judd, to your point, you know, uh, this is the disposition. They, this patient had atypical system or symptoms, low score. It was very powerful for this particular patient that she knew that she was at low risk. And she actually said, okay, I'm good and go start an exercise program. There was another patient who was at low risk, and it's a female. Uh, two female patients at low risk. Wanted to, this made them feel better about starting an exercise program. She mentioned she was going to do this We Dance program with her daughter. The, guy, the guys at high risk, this is probably the biggest thing. This guy here had come into the clinic for the last six months with chest pain. And um, he had the EKG that was normal. He had a stress test that was normal. He was a ballroom dancer. And he said, you know, every time I go and dance, I get chest pain. And the docs kept seeing him. We seen in our resident clinic. The docs kept seeing him and said, you know, your stress test is normal. Uh, you know, this is probably reflux, you're anxious as well. So he came in when I was precepting the residents and said, well, let's, let's do the test. So he, he scored a 32. He had persistent symptoms. We said, you know, we've heard this story. It sounds real. We got a high core CAD test. Let's cath him. He had major obstructive coronary disease and went for heart surgery, okay, within the week. So here's an example where we were kind of in this pattern of kind of denial in a way, or at least looking at the test and saying this is good enough for us, but this guy kept coming to tell us, and here's a test that did, you know, Judd, change what we did. It prompted us to go get the cat. So, you know, I, I, I'm looking for some feedback, because this is, I was originally gonna give this test a month from now, so I was gonna have this cleaned up, but now I, I gotta figure out how to present this data. So some things that I took from this is, low score really correlated well with Framingham. Did it really add any value? The question is, these higher scores, did they force me to do something different? Like this one guy, we cath this patient. This other patient of mine, where is he? Right here, I sent him to cardiology. Now, he went to cardiology, and cardiology did the stress test, and this guy passed the stress test. But he says, every time I'm exercising, going upstairs, or even having intercourse, he was having chest pain. I'm there. So I sent him to cardiology to get a cath. And they kind of did the stress test. So maybe I'm just biased because there's other patient I've seen in this study. but. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling with to see the value so of this test. Similar things with the other, so like this 83-year-old black female here with a 29 versus 4. Did you see something similar when you looked closer at her? Or you know, she did a stress test. I, I, you know, she came in and she had had asthma that wasn't really well controlled too, which could have caused her chest pain. But I did, based on that study, I sent her to get a stress test that was normal. But she's 83, you know, so I mean, I'm, I'm sure she's got some obstructive coronary disease. It's just, was it, was it to the point where it was you know, 60, 70% where we would see kind of the changes on the stress test? Uh, so you know, the, these high-risk people, so an algorithm might be that if you get a high-risk score, you don't worry about a stress test, you go right to cat, right? That could be one way to approach it. If you're low risk, it's really reassurance where you don't have to go and do another stress test or get the radiation from a thallium study. You know, that could be one of the algorithms or the care plans. Um, these, it's also 43% specific. 
No, I don't know what you know. They gave us twenty. Yeah, yeah. What was that? Did you get the last seven? Not yet. No, I'm probably not going to do it in the next month either. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to stop here and just kind of see see what we. You know, it's a it's a, a real world experiment. You know, what we we offered this test. Patients were interested. We were able to do the process of getting the blood work, getting the results back. But you know, Cora CAD is out there saying that well, if you have a low score, that's going to reduce your healthcare costs because you're not going to do these other tests. If you have a high score, does it cause you to do fewer tests and you go right to the cath, the gold standard, because you really think that, uh, that that's a high yield test? So. Well, I mean, also you could look at it as potentially the one that was cath was potential for you know, a heart attack. And you're, are you really using this to prevent the major health event? And one out of 13 is at a, a high enough percentage to say, you know, to, to stop someone from this happening when we were actually seeing them. We're hearing the complaint. We just didn't have enough to sort of move to the next level. You know, maybe that's reasonable. If, if the false positive is greater than 50%, wouldn't it be very expensive to use that as a way to shortcut through these other steps and go straight to a, your gold standard? I mean, you end up, because you get a lot of folks at the end of that process who didn't need that. Right. And then that would. Assuming so I mean, the gold standard is expensive. Yeah. True. <laughs> About seven thousand dollars, right? Nine thousand dollars for a cath. Yeah. So it's an expensive test. And I wonder how how the, how the charge for this test will end up being relative to a stress test. I think they're right now their pricing is comparable. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, so the, so I think they're offering this product as a as an alternative to the stress testing. And I think what I hear from my partners is we've just been doing stress testing so long we're comfortable with it. <laughs> I don't need to learn about gene expression and. <laughs> I'm just going to keep doing what, what my standard of care has been. So that's also, one option. That may not be bad. You don't do the stress test and something bad happens. Is that, would that, you know, in a malpractice, would someone say that was unreasonable? Well, I think you'd have a harder argument because the standard of care, I think most internists would say someone with chest pain, you should do some functional study. Yeah. yeah. But I think we talked about Medco's angle in this. This is the angle for these companies to say, okay, our, our business plan is going to reduce the health plan expenditures because we're going to be doing fewer stress tests. And the, the one thing that resonated with me was the patient safety issue, particularly related to the radiation we give. Uh, that was something I, I just got refreshed on and maybe had kind of forgotten about it. But when I went back and looked at the literature, I was just amazed at how much radiation our patients get when they get a... Uh, perfusion study. And that's something that we don't really communicate that risk very well to patients. To what extent does the Framingham score inform whether or not to order the subsequent See, I don't think we're doing, no, that, but, but that, may, that may be the missed opportunity, Judd, where, you know, we, we need to put that Framingham score in the middle of this. That's a free test, right? It, I just punch it in. And when I went back and looked at this, it was amazing to me that the majority of people had a Framingham score less than 10%. So we really kind of in our minds were thinking these people were at low risk and we just needed to reassure them that they were at low risk, which we've seen with some of the patients that they felt more comfortable to go and exercise. Um, so I think we maybe an opportunity is to say let's, a nice study would be to look at the core CAD compared to the Framingham risk and see who had the obstruction. Is the Framingham score influenced by the Framingham history? No. But I think the Reynolds risk score is. So, but but maybe we're under. You know, we we have these new flashy thousand dollar tests, but maybe we're underutilizing some real inexpensive tests if we want to get a reducing cost. Reynolds risk scores and Framingham scores should be part of the conversation about your risk, and I think we're totally underutilizing that. So I think as a study with this would be something I'd recommend moving forward with. Was, it, was Framingham on that previous slide with the specificity and the sensitivity? No, yeah. no, but it's good. I can look at it. Yeah, we'll see what that says. So that's uh, that's where we are. That's where we are as of today with personalized medicine. And today uh, we're celebrating DNA Day at the practice. And you know I've had a great uh, great time working with all of you. This has been a, a real eye opening and pushed me into the the margin, so to speak, at my knowledge. And uh, hopefully we can continue to collaborate out in Colorado and try to bring some personalized medicine stuff out out west. So. Thanks for your attention today, and uh, any questions, comments?
More than welcome. Thanks. I get uh, to work in three different spheres, which is interesting. I'll be paid by the Colorado Health Foundation as a medical director for them. I'll run their teaching clinic at a for-profit hospital, Presbyterian St. Luke, and I'll have my faculty appointment through the University of Colorado. So I get to be in the middle of those political storms, yeah, which will be very interesting. Which I've had some experience here at Duke. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks. Thank you.